Thanks a lot to Ken and Ed and the ensemble. Isn't that a beautiful song? So if you have your Bibles with you, open up to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 11. We're going to be getting up to this uh, part of this story about how Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. I told the early service, this is the great getting up morning because we're finally going to get him out of the grave. He's been there for four weeks. And uh, so it's time for him to come back. And today's the day. Are you excited about that? All right. Well, the title of this morning's sermon is Come Forth, because that's exactly what we're talking about as Jesus comes to the grave and gives Lazarus those famous words of Lazarus, come forth. So we're in John chapter 11. We're looking at verse 36 all the way through verse 44. So you might remember the shortest verse in the Bible, 35, Jesus wept. And then 36, so the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also hath kept this man from dying. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth, Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Father, we bow our hearts before you this morning, and we pray for deeper insight into this text. God, we pray that God the Holy Spirit would illuminate this passage in our hearts in a way that would help us see the power of the resurrection of Lazarus and the implications of this story in our own spiritual journey. Be magnified today, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, how did life begin on this planet? There are many ancient Greeks who believe that living things could come spontaneously from non-living matter. In fact, for centuries, scientists believed, and some still do, that if conditions were just right, and if you had organic matter mixed together in a certain way, that somehow living cells could emerge from this primordial makeup. To help them out a little, the Greek gods, uh, one of the goddesses, Gaia, could even make a life arise spontaneously from the stone. And that was where the process became known as spontaneous generation. Variations of this concept of spontaneous generation, life from non-living matter, have existed for centuries. But in 1864, the well-known science experiments of Louis Pasteur ran a series of tests which proved that life simply does not arise in areas that have not already had existing life. In other words... Through unbiased, objective science, Pasteur proved that life cannot come from non-living matter. 
Today, many scientists have been moved from spontaneous uh, generation to biogenesis. And biogenesis is yet another attempt in science to explain where life came from. And they would say the production of new living organisms can only produce new life. So you have to have life in order to produce life, but the question still exists, where did the original life come from? Why am I telling you all of this? Because today, we're going to see a man who is physically dead, who became alive again. And that's no uh, coincidence, and that's no, nothing that science could ever explain. That's a miracle, right? Lazarus was dead. He wasn't just partially dead. He wasn't just brain dead. No, he was dead, dead. And he had been in the grave for four days. And I told you a few weeks ago that when the human body dies, decomposition begins in just four minutes. When the cells of a dead body are derived of oxygen, carbon dioxide in the blood increases, the pH decreases, and waste accumulate, which in return poison the cells. Cellular enzymes begin to dissolve the cells from the inside out, eventually causing them to rupture. And we talked about all this. That's just the nastiness of a dead body decaying. And it releases this this putrefied odor, which oftentimes lingers even after the dead body has been removed. This is exactly what happened to the body of Lazarus. He was dead. He would have been declared legally dead. There was no heartbeat. There There was no breathing. After four days, his body was fully engrossed in the process of decomposition. And yet Jesus commanded him to come forth. And in that instant, every cell became living again. In that moment, the heart that had laid still for four days began to beat again. In that instant, the lungs that were lying dormant drew their first breath. Red blood with rich oxygenated flow began pumping through his arteries. Every putrefied cell became pure. Every joint was strengthened. Every muscle fiber regained its power. Every synapse in the brain was firing. Every organ sprang into immediate action. Lazarus was fully alive. Spontaneous generation does occur but only at the call and the command of the Lord Jesus Christ. Life does not come from non-living matter unless the Lord Jesus awakens the dead. And he performs biogenesis from his life to Lazarus's life. That's the vibrancy and the fragrance of Christ from life to life. Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And when he did, Jesus made the dead man alive. Jesus can make the stones cry out. Jesus is not a God of the dead, but he's a God of the living. Jesus makes all things new. In Jesus, there is life and life eternal. And so, dear Christian, be encouraged with the inspired words of 1 Corinthians 15, 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery, Paul wrote, but we shall not all sleep. We shall be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, when the trumpet will sound and the dead in Christ will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? 
O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ. Let me ask you this morning, church, do you believe that? Do you believe in life this morning? Do you believe that Jesus causes life to come from non-living matter? Do you believe that Jesus took your dead heart and your corpse, spiritually speaking, and made you alive? Do you have the victory? Have you responded to Christ's call to your life on this day when he says, come forth, come out of your unbelief? Come out of the deadness of your heart and awaken to a risen Savior. So this morning, I want to pick up right where we left off last week. I want to simply give you three headings that I will form in the, in the form of three questions that will help us see the significance of Christ's call to come forth. Here's where we ended last week. We'll pick up here today. Number one, when you start to doubt Do you trust in his wisdom? That first blank is the Jews' observation. The Jews' observation. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. Remember when Jesus saw Mary weeping, he was also deeply moved. And I told you last week that this word for deeply moved meant to be indignant. It meant to be greatly agitated. Literally, it means to snort like a horse. This word deeply moved is not used in this context to communicate sympathy, but rather disgust. Jesus was upset. I believe he was mad at sin and at the effects of sin and how sin led to death and how that death caused much pain to Mary and Martha. We were reminded last week that Jesus is not a stoic. He is not apathetic. He is not impassive. He is the God-man. He is mighty and he is meek. He is filled with strength and resolve, but also he is appropriately human, and he experiences all the feelings and the emotions of a real human being. And I hope that you'll take comfort in that today, in the fact that Jesus wept. There's no shame in the tears of our Lord. There is only love and concern and sympathy that he shows to all those who are in need. And when the Jews saw Jesus weeping, they saw it as a sign of his great love for Lazarus. Uh, The spectators saw in his tears an evidence of love, just as these bystanders saw a good glimpse of the Savior's face, may we get a good glimpse at his face too. You know why? Because Jesus hasn't changed. He still feels and he still looks, and he still knows about the situations in your life. When Stephen was being martyred, Jesus stood up in heaven to look down upon earth. He's still fully engaged. He's interceding for you. He knows your hurt, and he knows your pain. And so when you read this text about how Jesus wept, it's just a reminder. He knows what I'm going through. He's here with me in this moment. The, fa- the same face that wept for Lazarus is the same face that prays for you now. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So be encouraged that just as Jesus was there for Mary and Martha, he will be there for you. He knows your hurt. He knows your need. He offers his counsel. He consoles you with his love. Look to him in times of heartache, and he will look back to you with eyes of compassion and eyes of care. 
never move too far past the tears of Christ. We never see him more relatable, more humble and intimate than when he is in tears. The God-man, Jesus Christ. That's the observation we should make today, that he is a God of love. And yet we also see another blank here in verse 37. Not only did the Jews make that observation, but then they come to a different conclusion, the Jews' conclusion. While some of the Jews were admiring Jesus, others were criticizing him. Look, look what they said. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Uh, in other words, they were saying if Jesus just healed the blind man back in John chapter 9, then couldn't he have kept this same man from dying? The obvious answer to that is yes. Yes, he could have kept Lazarus from dying. But Jesus didn't want to keep Lazarus from dying. Jesus wanted Lazarus to die so he could live again. Uh, Jesus wanted that to happen. He ordained that that would happen. And we've got to draw strength from that because sometimes we would be like, well, well shouldn't, I mean, shouldn't or couldn't God save me from this trial? Yes, he could. Yes, he could, but maybe he wants you to go through it. Jesus wanted Lazarus to die so that he could live again. Jesus wanted Lazarus to die so that people could see the glory of God through the Son of God at this very occurrence. Each time God allows you to go through a trial, he is wanting to reveal something new about his character to you. Remember, Mary and Martha are like, we know that you're the resurrection and the life. And Jesus is like, you don't fully understand what I'm saying yet. He's trying to say, I'm about to raise him from the dead right here, right now, and they're not quite getting it, which is why trials come to teach us something more about God. Just when you think you've got God figured out, just when you've seen everything that you think you could possibly see about God, he shows up again and again and again, and he just happens to do it oftentimes through trials. We see this throughout the Bible. God wants you to see him as El Roy, the God of seeing, El Olam, the God who is everlasting, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord your provider. Each one of these names of God come at certain times in Old Testament history where somebody's up against a wall and they don't know which way to go and God comes through again. And when he comes through again, he says, now I want you to know me like this. I am Jehovah Jireh, your provider. I am Jehovah Rapha, your healer. I am Jehovah Nisi, the Lord our banner. I am Jehovah Mikadesh, the Lord who sanctifies. I am Jehovah Shalom, the Lord our peace. I am Jehovah Sitkanu, the Lord our righteousness. It's just awesome. It's awesome to see new things about God. And we see something new about our Savior in this text. And we need to be reminded that sometimes we need trials to teach us and to remind us about the wisdom and the power and the steadfast love of the Lord. So could Jesus have kept Lazarus from dying? Yes, he could. Why didn't he? The answer is, is that God works all things after the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11. And he does not give an account of all of his doings, Job 33.13. The secret things belong to the Lord, Deuteronomy 29.29. Jesus delayed because his purpose was not to heal Lazarus, but to raise him from the dead and in so doing to bring glory to the Father who in return would glorify the Son. In verses 38 through 40, let's now look at Martha's lapse of faith and Christ's gentle reminder. 
her lapse of faith, Christ's gentle reminder. Your next blank says Jesus came to the tomb. He came to the tomb. Verse 38, then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. So here we see Jesus deeply moved again. Remember, he's mad at sin and its effect on the world because sin leads to death. And that truth is never more clear than when you are at someone's grave. You don't think sin leads to death? Next time somebody dies, you just think, you know what? That's a result of the fall. They're dead because sin exists. And so Jesus comes to the tomb. He's still thinking about that a little bit. And then he shows up there uh, to do something awesome, right? Now, a tomb in Israel is often just a natural cave. Oftentimes, it would be modified and further carved out of the rock. I've had the privilege of going to Israel, as maybe many of you have. One day, I was on a tour bus. We're driving down the road in Israel. All of a sudden, a bus stops and pulls over to the side of the road. So all of us are like, what's going on? Do we have a flat tire? What's happening? We get out of the bus, and, and then our tour guide is like, look, there's a tomb that we think is very similar to the first century. And there on the side of the road, we were able to get out, walk down into this tomb, kind of get a, get a feeling of what it would have been like to be in one of these tombs. There's many tombs like that in the Holy Land. You have to duck your head and you enter into the tomb and the floor would be leveled. There would be shelves sometimes where the bodies would be, uh, be able to be stored, cut out of the walls. Uh, sometimes you could fit up to 18 to 20 bodies in a single tomb. And as was the Hebrew custom, this tomb was located outside of the village outside of Bethany, so that the living would not come in contact with the dead. Uh, you might remember Numbers 19.16 says basically that you shall not touch a human body that has died. Uh, no doubt this part of the Old Testament law was to protect God's people from sickness and disease. Uh, touching a dead body would defile a person. But Jesus came to make that which was unclean, clean. Jesus came to make that which was defiled devoted to God. Jesus wasn't afraid to touch a dead man. He wasn't afraid to touch a leper. He wasn't afraid to eat with sinners. Jesus comes down to where we are, and he always communes with us and makes us new because Jesus does all things well. And so he certainly has no concern about touching a dead body here. It was also common in those tombs to have it covered with a large round stone sealing the entrance of the tomb likely to keep out animals and grave robbers, also to keep the stench inside. And we even read how Joseph of Arimathea rolled a great stone to the entrance of Christ's tomb in Matthew 27, verse 60. And then we read in verse 39 how Jesus said, take away the stone, take away the stone. You know what's going on here is Jesus, your next blank, number two, Jesus involves others in his work. I love that about this verse. Jesus said, take away the stone. And in Martha, the sister of the dead man said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he has been dead for four days. But let's talk about this first part. We're just take away the stone. That's a command that the Lord gives involving others in his work. As is so often the case, Jesus doesn't need you, but he honors you by employing you in his service. Jesus could have removed the stone. He could have made the stone disappear. He could have just snapped his fingers and that stone would have been long gone. I mean, he could just speak the word and mountains would be moved into the sea. But Jesus never wasted his power and he never used his miracle working ability to show off or to infatuate his followers with the miracles he performed. 
No, Jesus rather wanted to involve us in his work. We see this in John 2 when Jesus told the servants to fill the jars up to the brown with water and take it to the master of the ceremony. We see it in John 3 when Jesus was out baptizing, but the text says he wasn't baptizing. It was his disciples that were baptizing. We see this in John 5 when he tells the lame man to pick up his mat and to walk. We see this in John 6 when Jesus feeds the 5,000, having his disciples both distribute the food and then gather up the leftovers. In each one of these occurrences, Jesus purposefully involves others in his work. On this command of Christ to take away the stone, J.C. Uh, Ryle writes this, quote, Now why did our Lord say this? It was doubtless as easy for him to command the stone to roll away untouched as to call a dead body from the tomb. But such was not his mode of proceeding. Here, as in other cases, he chose to give man something to do. Here, as elsewhere, he taught the great lesson that his mighty power does not mean to destroy man's responsibility in service. Even when he was ready and willing to raise the dead, he would not have man stand by altogether idle. I appreciate that reminder. I think there's a great truth that we see here and all over the Bible. God does the work, but he wants us to be involved. The Bible says that we are to break up our fallow ground. We are to prepare the fields for harvest. We are to plant the seed and to water the seed, but only God can make it grow. J.C. Ryle goes on, quote, Without Christ, we can do nothing, but still we must remember that Christ expects us to do what we can Take away the stone is the daily command which he gives us. Let us beware that we do not stand still in idleness under the pretense of humility. Let us daily try to do what we can, and in the trying, Christ will meet us and grant his blessing. Close quote. It's a reminder. It's God's power, but he involves you. He wants you. And so let me ask you this morning, are you involved in God's work. I mean, do you expect God to do everything? He can, and when he wants to, he does. But he does what he does, and then he commands you to take part, not in your own salvation, obviously, but as part of your sanctification, there is that synergistic effect of it's the grace of God working in you. And you and I have a responsibility, church, to sometimes start rolling away some stones. You and I have responsibilities by his enabling and in his strength to do what he commands us to do, and he calls us to do the work that he has equipped us to do. Now, in the second part of verse 39, Martha, when she says, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Obviously, she's very concerned that if they do take away the stone, as Jesus says, there's going to be a very foul odor. And we understand this as we've already been reminded of what happens after four days of decomposition. I mean, the smell would have surely been awful. The odor would have been horrendous. The, the stench would be unbearable. This is all true unless, of course, Jesus were to work a miracle. Uh, by the way, have you noticed here in the text, nowhere does it say, and when they rolled the stone back, oh, the stench, oh, the odor. It's almost like it's all gone. While they're sitting there talking, Jesus may have been already raising Lazarus up. You remember, he just says, come forth. 
So even in this moment, it may be he's already getting up, the smell's already completely gone, and he just calls him forth. And by the way, that's just how your life is until Jesus works a miracle. Your life stinks when you are dead in your trespasses and in your sins. But when Jesus takes away the stone, he takes away the stench. He makes all things new. He gives you a new heart and a new life and a new smell. Oh, you smell good. I'm so thankful that Jesus completely changes us from the inside out. And he removes from us our tendencies and our habits and our sin. He rescues us from death and he rescues us from the stench of death. What an amazing truth we're seeing lived out in this, in this actual event of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. One more thing I want you to see here. Number three, Jesus' rebuke points to his glory. Notice Jesus in verse 40. Jesus said to her, that would be to Martha, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Make no doubt about this, church. This is a gentle rebuke from the Savior. Jesus is gracefully but directly addressing Martha in a way that would remind her of the doubt that she's starting to enter into. If you'll remember when Jesus came to Bethany, initially Martha went out to meet him and they had had this conversation where Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? And Martha had said, yes, I believe. So what happened? Did Martha believe or didn't she? Was she a woman of faith or was she a woman of doubt? Was she walking by faith or was she walking by her feelings? I think the answer is Martha did believe. She's just still confused about the timing of this resurrection. Remember, she had her eschatology down, but she didn't realize that right here, right now, Jesus' words are speaking to her. And sometimes that's how we need to be. Right? Some, some of us are too Bible-focused that we forget right here, right now, at this moment is when Jesus wants you to apply his word and his truth. And aren't you glad that we have a God who reminds us of that? I mean, Jesus could have gotten really mean here and said, don't you remember what I said? In a very, you know, sometimes he did that to the disciples. He's like, what are you doing? But for Martha, I think he's more of a gentle uh, rebuke of a reminder. Aren't you glad we have a Savior who's patient with us, who reminds us, who confronts us when we lack in faith? He corrects our thinking. He, he doesn't count our misunderstandings against us. Uh, Jesus wants us to believe what is true, and he wants us to think about what is true and to obey what is true. And we get distracted on a daily basis. Martha goes back to common sense. Don't open the, the tomb. It's going to stink in there. She kind of forgets about this lesson Jesus has already been teaching her. We need constant correction and constant reminders. Anybody have any kids? Constant correction, constant reminders. You need the same thing. I need the same thing. Every moment, every day, constant correction, constant reminders. Can I ask you a question today, mom and dad? Do you get offended when others remind you of a biblical truth? Do you resent correction? Do you want to be sharpened or not? Do you want to grow or not? Do you want to grow and change and be made more like Jesus or not? If you do, then you will welcome constant correction. You will welcome that from your spouse. And yes, sometimes from your kids. And yes, from your pastor. 
And yes, from your small group leader, we need to be a church that's constantly reminding each other. We certainly don't need someone to respond like, I already know that. Then why ain't you living it? You know what I'm saying? Then why aren't you in that moment living out what the Bible says? Yes, we want to be patient. Yes, we want to be kind. No, I'm not saying hit everybody over the head with the Bible every time. But I am saying what the Bible says in Psalm 94, 12. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law. Proverbs 12, 1. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. Every time I share that verse, my kids are like, oh, Daddy said a bad word. <laughs> and I'm like, it's in the Bible, kids. It's only one time you're being stupid. And that's when you're not heeding the reproof and correction that God gives through his word. Amen? All right, just check in with you. Proverbs 19.20, listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. Listen, we need to be a church who's like, hey, teach me. Like, come step on my toes, pastor. Like, bring it on. Like, I need it, right? I need to grow. I need to be reminded of it today. Don't be offended by this truth. See it as a gift from the Lord, the fact that Jesus loves you and he's calling you and he calls you to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel to which you've been called. Be reminded of the truth that you are forgiven if you're in Christ, that he's called you to be different than the world, to be a witness to the world. Be thankful that we serve a, a, a God of correction. I'm thankful for that insight into this text. So let us move on. When we doubt, we want to trust his wisdom. Let's move on. Number two, when you listen to Jesus pray, what do you hear? When you listen to him pray, what do you hear? Well, number one, we see here that Jesus gives thanks. He gives thanks. Verse 41 so they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. At this point, the Jews obey Jesus. They probably got the nod from Martha, and now that she's been overruled by Jesus about rolling back the stone, that's what they do. And it would have taken more than one man to move this large stone. This was a concerted effort. This was a joint affair. Uh, what a dramatic scene this must have been. Martha was still probably processing what Jesus had just said. Mary's weeping. The Jewish crowd is pressing in. The disciples aren't recorded here, so they're speechless. And Jesus just lifts his eyes to heaven, and he prays. Yeah, what a beautiful, simple, and sincere prayer this is. Jesus starts off his prayer by giving thanks. And at first, though, he, he just addresses God as Father. Did you notice that? Here he just said, he looks up to heaven and he says, Father. This was not characteristic of the Jewish prayers, but it most certainly was characteristic of our Lord's prayers. There is a closeness in Jesus' voice. There is a familiarity. There is an intimacy between God the Father and God the Son. Jesus spoke with him as Father because he is Father. And there's gratitude that Jesus expresses here as he gives thanks. This word thanks communicates gratefulness. It communicates that he trusts in the Lord. It communicates there's faith he has in God. It communicates even here that Jesus already knew that the Father had heard his prayer. I mean, here at the end of verse 41, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always heard me. I mean, it's a good reminder, right? God, God knows what you're going to pray before you pray it. You say, well, where's that in the Bible? Well, how about Psalm 139.4? Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. He knows what you're going to pray. He calls you to call out to him in prayer. 
reaching out to him as father, thanking him for what he's done. Jesus is acknowledging that, that he's been in constant communication with the father. He had been probably praying this same prayer in his whole walk from where he was down to Bethany. I mean, Jesus certainly prayed without ceasing. Uh, the blessed union between the Father and the Son was inseparable. Jesus had every confidence that the Father was hearing his prayers. Do you have that same confidence? Can you come to the Lord and say, Father, I thank you that you've heard my prayers. You know my heart. You understand my need. And I thank you that you're a God who works, a God who hears. Thank thankfulness in prayer is common in, in Jesus' prayers before he fed the 5,000. Remember, he, he uh, took the loaves in John six eleven said when he had given thanks. When Jesus fed the 4,000 in Matthew fifteen thirty six he took seven loaves and the fish and when he had given thanks. On the night that Jesus was arrested, we read in Luke twenty two nineteen that he took the bread and when he had given thanks. All I'm trying to say is one of the core tenets of Christ's prayers is thanksgiving. He's always thanking God, and that's how we're taught to pray. In Philippians 4, verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, present your request to the Lord, right? So the idea is like, yes, we can solicit. Yes, we ask God for help, but we also, with the spirit of thanksgiving, we come to him like that. Thanksgiving needs to be a big part of your prayers, I mean, do you spend more time in your prayer asking God for stuff or thanking him for who he is and for his power and for the fact that he hears your prayer and for the fact that he's given you new life in Christ? I mean, don't take anything for granted, right? It's Psalm 100, verse 4. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Are you a thankful person? You spend time thanking him in your prayers. Not only does Jesus give thanks, but secondly, we see Jesus prays on the account of others. In verse 42, I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around. So there's so much that we can learn here from Jesus's prayers. In addition to giving thanks, there's this idea of when Jesus prays, he's praying for others. And he's praying on the account of others. Uh, when he prayed in John 12, 27, he said, Father, glorify your name. And the voice came from heaven, said, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And then Jesus said, this voice has come for your sake and not for mine. So we're seeing a kind of a theme here. He prays and he's praying on purpose so that others hear either his prayer or the answer to the prayer so that others are aware that Jesus is praying to the Father and the Father is interacting with who Jesus is. That's how Jesus does. He, he prays with a mission in view. He, he's praying all the time for, for other people, for God to be glorified, but for other people to see it and to hear it and to witness it. Uh, by the way, this is how uh, Jesus prayed in uh, the high priestly prayer. He's praying for them. Again, always praying on the account of others. It's the way that we see Elijah pray. Remember that story in 1 Kings chapter 18 where Elijah is there at Mount Carmel and there are the 450 prophets of Baal who are trying to tempt Israel to go their way. And there's Elijah, this one prophet who says, no, you guys need to quit hesitating between two opinions. God is God. And so when he prays, after they pour, remember they had their sacrifices, they pour all the water all over it, and then he prays like this. He says, answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. 
to another words, when he prays, he's like praying on behalf of the people. He's like, Lord, answer by fire. Show them your God. And, and there's, a, there's, a, there's something to that, right? Let me, let me ask you about your prayers. Are you praying more for yourself or on behalf of others? Are you praying with a mission focus in mind? Yes, we can and should pray for ourselves and for our good health and for safety and for all those sort of things. But please don't forget to pray for others and don't forget to pray with a mission focus. Don't pray for yourself with just a selfish motive in mind. God, gimme, 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 gimme. I need, I need, I need. It's like, no, Lord, I just thank you for who you are. And I'm praying on behalf of others today. When you pray for your family, what do you pray for? You know, you're taking them to school. Do you pray like, like God, just protect my kids today and help them get good grades? That's how we start, so we do pray that. But then I keep going a little deeper. And Lord, help them be a light for you. God, help them live out the gospel. Lord, I pray that their classmates would see Jesus in our kids today, that they would obey their teacher, and that everybody who sees them would know there's a God in heaven. Kids are like waking up like, Dad, are you okay? And I'm like, we're having revival on the way to school, right? Because it's more than just grades, right? It's more than just protection, right? That's how we pray. We pray with others in mind that they may see God. And so we need our prayers stirred up a little bit as we're even looking and learning from Christ's prayers. How about Colossians 4, 2 and 3? Paul said, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful with it in thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. In other words, our prayers need a mission focus. And so we learn that from Jesus' prayer. He gives thanks. He prays on account of others. And then the last part of his prayer we see here, C in your outline, Jesus connects himself with the Father. Look at the end of verse 42, that they may believe that you sent me. And so here at the end of this prayer, Jesus wants to make sure that everyone listening to him knows that he's connected with the Father. Jesus is very careful about not being seen as a second deity. Somehow God does his thing, I do my thing. No, no, he says everything I do, I'm obeying him. Whatever he tells me to do, that's what I do. I'm fulfilling my Father's will. I'm praying on account of the fact that the Father will reveal himself to them through my actions and my words. We need to make sure our prayers are in connection with the Father. You know, we're not praying like the Pharisee and the publican who basically bragged about his pious behavior. You know, you, know, you ever heard somebody pray and you're like, who are they talking to? Are they talking to God? Because all I hear is a whole lot of information, and I don't hear a whole lot of supplication, adoration, thanksgiving, and other things that we are learning that need to be incorporated in our prayers. Now, the last question I want to ask you this morning is number three, when Jesus raises Lazarus, what do we learn? Jesus commands Lazarus to life and to action. Verse 43, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Right at this point in the text, Jesus is now ready to do his mightiest miracle. And so he cries out with a loud voice. This word cried out means to utter a loud sound. It means literally to shout. The text says Jesus cried out, with a loud voice. It gives us another word, loud, where we get the word mega from. So it's like double, double. He cries out, that already means loud, and then it says with a loud voice, so the word mega. 
It means, that word mega means exceedingly loud. It, it can mean surprisingly loud. It's as if Jesus had a megaphone and he said, Lazarus, come out. Jesus called Lazarus by name. It has been well said that if he didn't first say the name Lazarus, if he just said, come forth, the whole graveyard would have got up and come out, right? Jesus knew Lazarus by name. He singled him out. He calls him out, and he comes out. We understand this is really just a foreshadowing of maybe even the rapture. There'll be a day in the future when this happens, 1 Thessalonians 4.16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And so why? Jesus cried out with a loud voice is not stated. It may have symbolized the power it took to raise somebody from the dead, or he may have done so, so all could hear. Surely there was a crowd by this point all trying to watch what was going on, and Jesus wanted to make sure there was no mistake about what he said and how he said it. And so Jesus commands the living, and now he commands the dead. Earlier in this gospel, Jesus said in John 5, 28 and 29, do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out and those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And so we see that Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead again is a preview of the divine power that he will display when he rises all from the dead on that last day. And after Jesus calls his name, he gives Lazarus a command he says, come out, literally, come here, come outside, or in the old King James, come forth. Uh, Jesus commands Lazarus to life and to action. Not only does Jesus make Lazarus alive, but he orders him into action. And so how does Lazarus respond? He does the only thing he can do. He obeys the command of the Savior. Look at your next and final blank. Lazarus comes out and is unbound. The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. Make no doubt about it, this man who had died was Lazarus. He had been bound hand and foot with linen strips and his face was wrapped in a cloth. The Jewish practice of wrapping the body was not like the Egyptian practice of wrapping a mummy, but some say it was equally effective. There was a long, narrow sheet folded in half and the body was inserted between the two halves. The, then the wrap was bound together and the body was secured. Spices were generously inserted into the folds of the wrapping to help reduce the smell and the decay of the dead body. The head was wrapped separately. The pretty amazing thing that he's wrapped that way. Some commentators even say there's actually two miracles going on here. One is the fact that Jesus made Lazarus alive. The second is the fact that he says, come forth, and that Lazarus actually comes forth. I mean, how did he come out? He was wrapped up in the tomb. How did he walk out? Was, was he levitated? You know, did he hop out? Did he crawl out on his hands and his knees? I mean, he must have been pretty athletic that he's wrapped up. Now, some will say he's wrapped loosely, but I'm just still making the point. You ever been duct taped? 
You're able to just kind of get up and walk out. How long does that take you, right? So I'm just saying there's something going on here where Lazarus is able to come out. And of course, Jesus does say here, unbind him, let him go. This is the third command in the text. Please note the first command was take away the stone. The second command was Lazarus, come forth. The third command was unbind him, let him go. If you're in Christ today, these three commands could be the same for you, right? It's time for you in your life to have the stone removed. It's time for you to be awakened. And it may be time for you to be unbound. If you're in Christ, remember you've been made alive to obey him and to follow him. He doesn't just be made alive and just stay in the cave, right? He comes out. It's for freedom, Galatians 5.1, that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Can you imagine Lazarus coming out, kind of seeing the bright sunshine, seeing all the people, and be like, I think I'm going to go back and turn around and go back in the grave. I mean, that would be ridiculous, right? It would be ridiculous for you to come out of your sin and to come out of your darkness and somehow to go back to where you've been. No, 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 no. If the Son has set you free, John 8, 36, you are free indeed. Don't fall back to your old ways. Jesus has made you alive, and Jesus has freed you from your bondage of sin so that you can walk in that freedom, so that you can use that freedom to glorify God. I like what A.W. Pink writes here in his commentary. He says, quote, There it was demonstrated that he, referring to Jesus, who was in the form of a servant, held in his own hand the keys of death and Hades. Here was public proof that the Lord Jesus had absolute power over the material world and over the realm of the spirits. At his bidding, a soul that had left its earthly tenement was called back from the unseen to dwell once more in the body. Thanks be to God for Almighty, for the Almighty Savior. How can any sheep of his ever perish when held in such a hand? Right? If Jesus had the power to raise Lazarus from the grave, he has the power to free you from your sin and its consequences, which are death. In Christ, you can cross over from death to life. Just as Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, so has every Christian been raised from the dead, spiritually speaking, in this room. Right? This is the mightiest miracle of Christ because of the decayed nature of Lazarus's rotten flesh. And my friend, your soul is rotten if you don't know Christ. Your inner man is covered with gangrene. Without Christ, you are a reprobate and you are at enmity with God. But the Lord Jesus calls you this day by name. He said, Lazarus, come forth. He says, Adam, come forth. Lisa, come forth. Whatever your name is, he calls you this day from eternity past and he calls you forth. So don't stay in the grave this morning. Come forth. Don't stay in darkness today. Repent of your sins. Believe in the truth of the gospel. God is holy. You and I are sinners. Christ also died and was raised from the dead so that you can repent and believe in him. Confess your sins to the Lord today. Your sin, it is much. What are we saying, right? But his mercy is more. It's more. It doesn't matter what you've done today. May your spirit be changed today from death to life. Let 
the spontaneous regeneration of the Holy Spirit call you this day. Yes, he will point out your sin, but he will also point you to the Savior so you can see the living Christ. And so I don't know who you are today or where you're from, but some of you are stuck in the grave. And Jesus is calling you with a loud voice this morning to come out and to come to him. Be not ashamed of Christ. Come and join him in spiritual life. Let his spiritual work of biogenesis have its way in your soul from Christ's life to your life. You need him. It doesn't happen unless he calls you and unless you respond. And it's all a work of grace. And so as we get ready to head out of here this morning, three questions I want you to keep thinking about. Number one, do you need a reminder or a rebuke today? Maybe you're here today and you've been a little bit more like Martha as we've tracked with her through this chapter. And today you're like, but Lord, why roll away the stone? It might still stink in there. If that's you, that's a downer, right? That's a negativity to the words of Christ. This morning you might need to be rebuked or reminded of the power of God. You might need to have your hope reinstilled in the gospel of Christ. And so we call you this day to receive the reproof of our Lord Jesus and to obey whatever it is he says through his word for you in your life. Number two, have you been raised together with Christ? Do you see yourself as a spiritual Lazarus? Have you been raised today from the dead? Has he awakened your soul to the glorious gospel? Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Number three, is there anything from which you need to be unbound? My fear is that too many of us in this church are walking around, maybe you're born again, but you're walking around in the grave clothes of your past. And the Bible calls you to be unbound completely. You can be set free from sin's penalty and salvation, and you can be set free from sin's, sin's power really in your sanctification, that, that continue lingering. If that's you this morning, be unbound. By the grace of God, be unbound. Know there's freedom for you in the Lord Jesus. He didn't save you to leave you wrapped up like a mummy. He saved you to be free in Christ, to serve him, to experience the joy of the Lord, and to serve one another. And so this day, I call you, in the words of Christ, to come forth. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for showing us so many powerful things here in this text. Lord, we know it's just a narrative, but whoa, what a narrative it is. All the narratives of the gospel show us incredible things about the power of Christ and the teaching of our Lord and the example of his prayers. We want to examine every word of Christ. We want to examine every action of Christ. We want to learn from those who responded well and those who responded not so well. And today, God, I pray that you would enable us those of us who are dead, that you would breathe life into us and make us alive. God, for those of us who are in Christ but are still lingering sometimes around the cave, around the stench, around the grave clothes, set us free, Lord. Let us see the beauty of walking in the freedom of our Lord Jesus Christ. We want to come today to you. God, thank you for saving us. Thank you for unbinding us. Set us free to be testimonies of the Lord Jesus Christ, about what you've done for us, that no one could ever argue with a life that's been changed by the glories of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.